Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Today's episode covers the last track on side one of Hard Promises, the up-tempo, uplifting King's Road. As always, please go and listen to the song before we start the episode, and for maximum effect, listen to the song afterwards too, to see if you've spotted anything you hadn't noticed before. I hear at least three or four things on every part in every song once I sit and put my podcast brain into gear for these episodes. Um, I'll leave a link to the song in the episode notes and wait patiently for you to get back. Oh, you're back? Excellent. Well, let's get into it. Today's song holds a a really nostalgic place in my heart, and not for sort of a historical connection to the song itself, but to the place it talks about. So my intro today is going to be slightly longer than normal, uh, as I tell you about why The King's Road, the final track from Side One of Our Promises, uh, holds such a special place in my memories. Uh, In 1988, at the age of 15, I made the somewhat unusual choice to join the army. Unusual in the sense that I was a a very surly teen, not well suited to a life of discipline and service. Um, I reported for my first day of military life on September 11th, 1989. So that date is a a real sort of double-edged sword for me. Um, And after just over two years in military college, um, trained to become a gunsmith, I was dispatched to England's first capital city, Colchester. After just over two years there, um, I was posted to Chelsea Barracks in the current capital of England, London. Uh, This was a huge culture shock for me. As a scruffy kid from a spit and sawdust working class background, London was as far away as LA would be for a kid from a small town in the US. You know, let's say somewhere like Gainesville, perhaps. Uh, My family are coal miners, cotton millers, factory workers, and generally people disconnected by a million miles from the bright lights of the capital. So being dropped into the middle of a huge busy city took some adjusting to. The first day there, though, uh, a guy named Mark Franklin, who would inadvertently change my life forever, took me out for a pint. The first pub we went to, the Rose and Crown, was a very short hop from the barracks, and from there, we proceeded to a really busy, trendy, you know, interesting street called the King's Road. Chelsea Barracks isn't there anymore, the land having been bought and converted into luxury suites years ago. And when I say luxury, I mean basic two-bedroom apartments there go for around $8 million US dollars. So, you know, they're not cheap. Um, but I spent just about two years in Chelsea, abbreviated by a stint in Northern Ireland, and throughout that time, the King's Road was where I spent a lot of time drinking, laughing, and marvelling at all the people wearing funny-looking clothes. The street vendors and chances had been moved on for the most part by that time, but there were still plenty of you know street artists like musicians, jugglers, magicians, etc. And on any given day, you might run into a group of punks, a group of millionaires from Franklin's Row around the corner you know, superstar professional footballers or supermodels hitting the high-end fashion shops, or you might just run into a weird, spotty, nervous kid from Wigan who was just trying to keep up and hoping against hope that one day a girl might talk to him and maybe even play with his dingling. Hey, you know what? I was young and single and also completely out of my depth. But I eventually became quite comfortable on the King's Road and it just became another haunt that me and my friends would, you know, by turns enjoy civilised lunch on or behave outrageously and sometimes borderline criminally on after too many pints or just waste a few hours on, you know, people watching. 
So if you're ever in London, I would encourage you to take the district or circle line to Sloan Square tube station, where I once gave Kate Beckinsale change for a fiver so she could grab a train ticket, um, and head slightly right until you see the signs for one of the coolest streets in the capital. If you do visit, uh, head down to a pub called the Chelsea Potter, where I whiled away hundreds of hours laughing and eating and socialising with my friends. Um, and the guy I mentioned earlier, Mark, who befriended me that first day, ended up becoming my best friend. And he married a Canadian girl a year and a half, I think, or a year later, maybe. And I was his best man. The maid of honour at their wedding has now been my wife for 24 years. So the King's Road is a somewhat tangential, circuitous, but really significant meaning to me. And when I heard this song for the first time, I knew the place it was talking about immediately. And it brought those heady summer days rushing back with full force. Anyway, I won't bore you any longer with my, with my uh, talking about myself. Let's talk about a fantastic Tom Petty song. To start this one off, I'm going to read the entry from Conversations with Tom Petty in full because I think it provides great context to the song lyrics. Tom tells Paul Zolo, that was a direct result of going to England and going down to King's Road in London. We'd always go there every time we went to London because that was where all the crazy clothes were. You could buy great clothes there. Maybe what Carnaby Street was in the 60s. This was where all the giant green mohawks were. This is where people paraded. The punks were all out. And that was a fairly new thing then. It was kind of like a carnival. You could walk down the road and just see all kinds of things. Vendors. I remember we used to go buy snakeskin boots and things you just didn't see here. And he finishes by saying, it's just kind of a light-hearted song. From 1981 to 83, the song was a live mainstay of the King's Road and Long After Dark tours, after which it was played only once in 1987 in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, it's another song that most bands you know, would or could use as a foundation for a live show, but it really highlights the strength of Tom's catalogue in that he could afford to retire it from live performances and have a few dozen other songs to drop in place instead with no drop in quality. King's Road is the second song in the Heartbreakers catalogue with an audible counting. I was going to mention which was the first, but maybe I'll talk about that in a different section of this episode, so look out for that. Um, the counting on this one is heavily echoed with lots of reverb and features some stick count and some guitar noise, and you know that's all in the first two seconds. I always love those decisions to leave those little things in recordings as they give songs a kind of live feel that really throws you into the room with the musicians. You know, on the word three, Benmont starts a pretty epic ascending organ sweep that starts, I don't know, somewhere down by your belly button and ends up right in your eyeballs. After that counting, the song just rips straight into life and doesn't let up for three and a half minutes. This is a pure up-tempo, major-key rock and roller. Stan Lynch is laying down a behemoth drum track with big crash cymbal hits on the first beat of every second bar in the verses, thudding floor tom hits and mini fills everywhere. You know, and those half-time toms in the second verse, and again, it's on the floor tom, it's giving that really sort of big, big resonant sound. They give the dizzying pace of the song just a momentary pause to catch its breath before barreling headlong back into that fantastic push into the chorus. New world born the old king's road. I'd guess that to get the weight in that line, the lead is double-tracked and the harmonies mixed slightly lower just to round things out. But when Stan drops that drum part out, the vocals then have so much more punch into that last line of a very short chorus. It's a two-line chorus. Uh, the drums on this track might be the most thunderous and aggressive of any of the Iovine-era records. I can't really think of any that sound bigger and are played as maniacally as, you know, as this one. It's Stan in full rock god mode and he doesn't let up at any point. When we get to the outro, he really amps things up and he's smashing the crap out of those crash cymbals. And at the three-minute mark, he goes to double time on the kick drum. And I can tell you from experience that there's something really liberating and exciting about just battering that kick through the end of a song. It gets your blood moving around your arteries, I assure you. And I bet this song was tons of fun for Stan to play live. 
The two guitar parts in this song are another example of how Tom and Mike were in perfect lockstep most of the time. If you listen to Mike's guitar in the left channel and those little half bends and run-ups, they're overlaid beautifully on top of Tom playing the same chords in a different position and sort of higher up the fretboard to create this huge wall of guitar sound that just pins you back by the shoulders and doesn't let you go. But it's not just a strummer-strummer song. Mike's adding in those runs and coming screaming out of the choruses with those slide licks. And it's a great example of the texture that Mike's adding into it. If you listen to the left channel at the 58 second mark as they come back into the second verse, Mike's dropping some really sexy harmonics that just chime through the cacophony and add sort of a, a tinkling bit of levity to proceedings. The bridge of this one is really interesting too, as it's not so much a bridge as like a, a pre-verse almost. In a lot of songs, you'll get a pre-chorus, you know, something that builds the chorus without actually being the chorus, but it's less common to get a repeated phrase come back out of a chorus into the verse or, you know, conversely, a sort of a, a phrase leading into a verse. But that's more what this is. Maybe let's call it a post-chorus as it repeats after the second and third choruses, but it doesn't really resolve into a real break away from the main flow of the song. It just acts as a kind of a temporary rest stop in the sonic maelstrom. Mike does add some guitar noodles to both sections, but it's almost as if they're sort of clinging on for dear life rather than taking any sort of lead in, in that section of the song. And the tone he uses in these sections is really similar to the one he employs on the solo in The Waiting, and I like that little bit of glue that exists through different songs on an album. It gives the whole thing so much more of a cohesive feel and operates like a classical music coda to cast your mind back to earlier songs or earlier parts of the, of, of the music. With the breathless, relentless pounding of the drums and the high-octane guitar attack, you could forgive Ron Blair for just sitting back in the pocket on the bass and minding his own business. But the frequency overload of this song is only taken to further heights by a bass line that takes Ron's signature style to the extreme in different ways. He's sliding around the root notes in different octaves with wild abandon and putting in plenty of progressions in between. There's nothing simple about this. There's nothing lazy about this. There's nothing boring about this bass part that Ron's playing. It really just complements the rest of the song in its sort of its urgency and its sort of frenetic energy. The only sane head in the room on this one seems to be Benmont, who, after that filthy organ sweep at the start, provides a little stability to the whole affair by playing some big fat chords, but not really playing any lead lines. When you listen to that organ, though, it's a gigantic sound. Leslie up to the max, full major chords, there's no filters, we want every note we can possibly get into this song. Alrighty, let's take a break from the song and I will give you some petty trivia. So last week's trivia question was this. Tom's paternal grandfather, William Carlo Petty, was better known by which nickname which would eventually make its way into the lyrics for a song from 2010's bluesy jam, Mojo? The answer is the fantastically lyrical Pulp Pulp Petty, who is one of the subjects of US 41 from Mojo. The story behind Tom's grandpa really is the stuff of Hollywood movies. Because he worked in a, a Georgia logging camp making pulpwood, the term became his nickname, and old pulpwood married the Native American camp cook, Tom's grandma. This was the early 1900s, and mixed-race marriages, especially with natives, was not condoned, and in some cases not tolerated by a majority of people. So pulpwood and his wife decided to get the hell out of Dodge. On their way out of Georgia, bound for Florida, they were accosted on the road, and in the ensuing altercation, pulpwood actually killed one of his assailants but they still managed to make it out and to the Sunshine State. 
And as Tom tells Paul Zolo in conversation with Tom Petty, this is the story as told to me by my father, so I take it to be true, comma, I guess. Your question for this week is this. King's Road is the second Heartbreaker song to feature an audible counting. What is the first? Back to the song. Let's talk about Tom's vocal and the lyrics for this one. Vocally, this is Tom pushing pretty hard. He's not nearly at the top of his vocal range, but he's forcing the delivery deliberately when it doesn't need to be. You know, wearing funny-looking clothes. I don't know. Those lines are just really stretched out. I'm a new world boy on the old king's road. Those lines are similarly given a hard edge just in how he constricts his throat and forces the notes out through his throat rather than from his diaphragm. That again shows how underrated a technical vocalist he was as it's a detail that can be missed. And if you're singing this one at karaoke, there's a good chance you're not getting the phrasing right and the delivery right on that line because you're not controlling your breathing and your air intake the same way that Tom is. If you think about how your voice sounds when you're holding a long note and you're almost at the end of your lung capacity... That's how Tom is delivering a lot of these lines, but it's by design. And he's simply drawing in less air, but more frequently to give those notes the urgency and the sort of that knife edge balance between success and failure. I've already given you some personal background on this song, and it's because lyrically, to me, again, it's very narrative. You can tell that these aren't hypothetical situations. These are clearly drawn, you know, vignettes based on actual experiences that Tom and the band had when they would have been touring in England in the mid to late 70s. And when they come on the back of Night Watchman and something big, they're given more depth than they might have if the song was sequenced differently on the album. So again, it's just that narrative flow that you get from those those three songs on side one. The second two lines of each verse are where Tom really drops the bombs. There were people all around wearing funny-looking clothes, some boys, some girls, some I don't know. And that was definitely my experience of The King's Road. Like there, It was sort of a melting pot of different people, different personalities, different cultures. But I can sort of see in a modern context and taken out of context, some people could point to that line as being out of step with um, maybe modern sensibilities regarding gender. But to me, there's no judgment in in that line at all. It's simply recognizing the androgynous reality of the 70s and 80s punk and new wave fashion and attitudes. You know, and again, it leads into that sort of, uh, the, the second verse, they had socks and shirts and underwear that I'd seen before, but I don't know where. Again, it's such a specific scenario that may well have been constructed, but it feels more narrative and it feels more real. So then the last verse we get, you can't get them in the USA, not New York City, not West LA. And notice that he doesn't say not in New York City, not in West LA. And that's just a great little lyrical decision. Gives the song a big, big, big swagger. One last thing that I'll say about the lyric um, and it might be a little bit of a nerdy thing, but I think Tom was actually pulling in experiences from different parts of London and knitting them into this King's Road narrative. For example, no one calls it the old King's Road. That's just not a phrase that anyone ever uses. But there's a very famous thoroughfare in southeast London called the Old Kent Road, which wends its way through Southwark and has a very rich and storied history. So I think that Tom maybe merged that in because it would work, you know, it just would work phonetically and poetically. So he sort of melded those two things together. Now, overall, with everything that's going on and everyone just going so crazy and playing so much, this song shouldn't be as clear as it is. Again, there's so much going on in it. 
No one's backing off. No one's taking it easy, apart from maybe Ben Mont, you know, a little bit in, in, in pieces. Everyone's playing to the max. But it's so masterfully engineered by Shelly Yakus to get those different parts into different sort of frequency ranges so they don't clash. And it's so beautifully produced by Tom and Jimmy Iovine that somehow the prison riot of sound actually comes together into an unexpectedly cohesive and supremely uplifting cascade of melody. I also love that the song doesn't fade out. It has an actual ending, which fits perfectly with the immediate frenetic pace that is set early on. You know, the ending is like a, a, a sprinter gasping for air at the finish line before finally dropping to their knees in exultation and in recognition of the race they've just run. And that sense of energy and elation is never more obvious than when you hear or see the song performed live. Check out the live version from the 1982 US Festival at the Glen Helen Regional Park in San Bernardino, California. If you want to watch a band enjoy themselves, this is a great example of it. And I'll leave a link to that uh, performance in the episode notes. Okay, folks, that's all for this week. There's not a ton of musical or lyrical complexity in this song, which isn't to say it isn't fabulously written, but the focus is on the energy, the mood, and the beat of the song rather than any sort of changes in pace or feel. Um, It's meant to get your feet tapping and your soul singing. This is probably what Tom meant when he said it's just kind of a light-hearted song. It's funny that this is going to be the longest song episode by a little ways, and on face value, it's kind of a throwaway song. But it's also really cool how we connect to art, and this song just time shifts me to a different part of my life that was shoved into a corner of my brain for a long time and gets to breathe fresh air every time I listen to King's Road. So I'm going to give King's Road an 8 out of 10. I can't in good conscience say that I find a real flaw in it, but I will also accept that of the songs on side one of uh, Hard Promises, it's definitely the simplest and the least challenging in terms of sort of Tom's movement forward as a songwriter. I also realise that my emotional connection to this song makes it much more special to me than it would be to most people, so I'll sit on an eight and say that it rounds out arguably the best side of any album that Tom made with the Heartbreakers. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. And again, if you already have done, please think about doing that again. Um, As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I'll continue to do that until the situation changes. And I'm getting quite tired of saying that, but obviously we're months into this thing now, and hopefully things change sooner rather than later. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can always find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable and please leave a review or a rating if you haven't already. Keep talking to me on social media. I'm loving the conversations that I have on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Um, If I don't get back to you immediately, give me a day. I'll almost always get back to you within 24 hours. Um, as a reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first to try to find what you're looking for and then go to tompetty.com for official merchandise. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member, as they're excellent fan communities and they are well worth your time. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to talk about the opening song from side two of Our Promises, Letting You Go. Bye-bye.